Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. My guest today, Will Hudson, is the founder of multiple companies, the most notable of which being the highly popular creative inspiration and showcase site called It's Nice That. Born out of a university project, the site went from just 100 views in its first month back in 2007 and has since organically grown to over a million visits per month. This growth has resulted in a number of creative offshoots, including the editorial publication, printed pages, as well as a creative agency, annual conference, regular speaking events, and an educational platform for new creatives entering the industry. To tell us more about this great journey over the last 10 years, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Um, uh, so, what, where can I start with you? So, for the first thing, <laughs> 10 years, that's kind of crazy. And uh, what does it feel like to have invested 10 years of your life into, into a project like this? Yeah, 10 years. Um, 10, well... I don't know. It's it's it feels great. It's it's super positive. The idea that we would have the business that we have ten years after launching it. If you told me back then, I would have thought you were joking. Uh, and then actually, it's ten years since the first blog post. So yeah, it's nice that's existed for ten years. But actually, I've probably been doing it, um, running that business with Alex. We always kind of put January two thousand nine as the marker. So it's about eight and a half years. I did work somewhere prior um, and kind of got invaluable experience to kind of lead into that eight and a half years. But um, no, it's it's I'm kind of kind of at ease with the idea of it being ten. I it's funny when people bring it up and talk about it, and I yeah I don't think I don't think Alex or I do particularly well of kind of looking back and kind of going yeah wow isn't that amazing? I think we're far too interested in what's next, what we what we can be doing kind of next. Just on the subject of kind of looking back at when I was doing research on on your background and yourself, um, you know, you've you've spoke about this website so many times that just for people listening, if there's any obvious questions that you kind of want answered off the back of this, then I would recommend just going and Googling Will's name because there's a lot, a lot of stuff out there. But hopefully today we can get a little bit more granular with you. 
Um, so you said all along that it's nice that it's about not necessarily about showcasing the best of the best. It's more about uh, surfacing like great work, regardless of age or reputation. And the curation process is a, is a massive part of that. And I just wondered if you could take us through like your actual process and how you bring work to the, to the front. I mean, that, that process has changed so dramatically in that 10 years. So when it first started, it was literally myself and a guy called Jez. And it was just, it was, it was, it was a way of cataloguing all the kind of great creatives that I was looking at and putting them all in one place. I'm absolutely useless at remembering people's names. And that is, that is what it was there for. They got tagged in terms of kind of photography, illustration, graphic design, and, and that was kind of its sole purpose. There was no grand plan. There wasn't a kind of um, trend forecast written me saying, yeah, blogging, that's going to be massive. Um, right up to today, where we've got an editorial team of six, so I haven't written anything for a long, long time. Um, shortly after we hired a, uh, our first editor, he kind of sat me down and said, I think it's probably best if you concentrate on other things, <laughs> which was fine. Um, but I think that the curation question always comes up and people are always interested. And I think the reality is, as soon as you know you've got to be writing somewhere in the region of 12, 13 articles a day, I think you just naturally look at the world a little bit differently. I think we're lucky that we get inundated with a hell of a lot of stuff. And that is a task in its own right to to kind of give them the time that they deserve to kind of look at them and, and see what they're about. We've also kind of garnered amazing relationships with creatives who either we'll be in touch with or they will kind of just get in touch and say, hey, I'm working on this thing. It's, it's going to be out in a couple of weeks. And then the other the other kind of massive side of it is just there's just an inherent interest in what's going on, who's doing who's doing what. Be that checking other sites, be it checking social media, be it checking um, kind of uh, newspapers, magazines as to who's been commissioned to do what. And it's just kind of, I think, one of the things that we have to maintain within that editorial team is an, a, is an allowance to just kind of go and lose yourself for a few hours and seeing what you come up with and what you discover and I think that will always hopefully be a massive part of who we are. It's I, I don't like the idea that it becomes one of these kind of uh, kind of publishers where there's just an editorial churn and it's just to deliver this, just don't stop writing, don't stop getting articles. Do you kind of, uh, you know, print out all the stuff that comes through to you and rip stuff out of mags and slap it up on the wall and say, you know, what, what's gro- what are people gravitating towards? What's the... Not really. No. So um, because of... Because of the kind of online world we live in, anything that comes through that one of the guys sees, um, it will get kind of discussed there and then as a, this has just landed, this is great, this is a no-brainer. But we always make sure that there is a conversation. It it hopefully allows um, work that maybe isn't quite right not to kind of end up on the site and then to be a conversation going, well, hang on. Um, what is this? Who's um, kind of who? Who said what? And and all the rest of it. So so for the time sensitive stuff, that's the kind of um, that's the process. And also, yes, we're online, but the reality is it's it's six seven guys sat around a desk, um, being able to have that conversation, being able to very quickly just turn laptops around, um, send links through Slack and and all the rest of it. The other side is the slower stuff, the portfolios, the creatives who we've seen where there's nothing immediate that yes we have to write about this and the guys are in two editorial meetings a week and that is a case of them moving away from where they usually sit um screens hooked up to a big screen and just being able to have the time for everyone to bring stuff to champion stuff and the editorial team 
editor or deputy editor will kind of delegate and and they'll agree disagree um and it's it's great i think i'm no longer a part of those conversations but when i sometimes overhear them it's great the energy that some of those guys bring to try and champion to make sure that people's work that they really believe in gets given an opportunity and just uh, last week lucy was recounting the story um lucy joined us last year uh, as a staff writer and I think within her first couple of weeks really fought for something and it really, people weren't sure whether or not it was quite right and she got it through and it then did really well on the site. Don't take this the wrong way because I'm sure you've been asked this many times but I sometimes say to myself, that's the kind of thing that it's nice that would publish. And um, I've read online that you don't tend to try and follow trends of any sort but in many respects because you are so popular among creatives, you you are the trend to some degree and when I go to DNAD New Blood and I look around I see a lot of creatives almost trying to create work that looks like it would sit in in that environment um what do you say to a person like me who says there's a there's a there's a there's a type of it's nice that work I, I think you're absolutely right I think um we are wholly aware of that and I think it's an ongoing challenge to make sure that we don't just get into a rhythm that is is way too comfortable but I think the nature of the beast is that you've got um, uh, six, seven sets of eyes looking at stuff and they each have their own personal styles and tastes. Um, I think one of the benefits of having two other businesses um, and kind of 30 people feeding in is we're getting insight and things that people are seeing from from far more than those six, seven people. But I think it's it's also something that actually when I think back to studying 10, 12 years ago, we were as guilty of it, but it wasn't online blogs. It was the latest month's creative review or graphic magazine or computer arts or whatever it be. And actually, you probably had a even more limited um, pool of content to be able to looking at and kind of, I think there's that phase as a student that you, you have to learn the line between inspiration and just copying. Um, and I think it's I think it's something that we are aware of, especially within younger creatives who do um, check the site very regularly and and are and and tread that line um, between influence and 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 copying. But it's interesting as to whose role it is to then try and educate and have that conversation. And invariably, if a um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a young creative, a creative of any kind. If we if we feel that they've been far too heavily influenced, the actual reality is is they stand no chance of of getting on the site because we look at it and go it's it's just a clear rip of someone else's work um but i think that's a process that everyone kind of has to go through to work out that actually um what will make you stand out in time is actually developing your own style your own confidence your own way of working you said in prior interviews that the main lifespan of content is somewhere between 24 and 48 hours um can you recall some of the most popular content today and does that affect the decisions you make on your, uh, future editorial features? No, I think to give a little bit more context to the 24-48 hour thing, I think because it's 12 articles a day, because it's a daily thing, because people come to look at what's new, the behaviour is set up in that way. So therefore, we're lucky that we have a very loyal readership. But actually, the reality is most people have decided whether or not they want to look at something and then it and then it drops out the thing when you actually go in and look at the analytics is it still gets viewed hundreds maybe thousands of times after that but compared to everything else it's seen as as relatively small um the content that does the best sometimes and the times that you really want it to be is when you've invested 
kind of a lot of time, energy, and money into a piece. Um, uh, Lucy interviewed Willie Eggleston um, recently, and I, um, I remember that piece doing particularly well. Um, but some of those kind of high, uh, kind of big name profile pieces. Uh, the flip side of that is you can spend, uh, I don't know, fifteen minutes writing up an article on sushi cats on a Friday, and actually, it's kind of what the internet's there for. And you do it, and and you do it with the greatest kind of um, desire for integrity to go look. There is something in this. This isn't just kind of um, uh, kind of just allowing the internet to do what the internet wants to do, but. Um, no, it tends to be a flip of those two things. The things that you've kind of, as a labour of love, and those things that you've just kind of gone, yeah, why not? Let's just get that up. I believe when you started, you said that even from day dot, you had a consistent release schedule of roughly four articles a day. And then as it's grown, you've just mentioned 12. Um, is there a perfect number that you're reaching for? And what, what actually informs that decision? So... I'm a big believer that consistency early on was a massive reason as to why we've grown to what we are because people knew every day you could come and view new content. Um, The challenge now is, yes, we have the editorial team and there's a belief that there's a certain amount of articles that on average you should be able to comfortably um, write and publish. You have to strike that balance between the things that are going to take you 15 minutes and the things that are going to take you two days. Um, But no, we... We know that there is a very, um, in terms of our size of audience, there's a very clear correlation between volume of content and total number of users on the site. Um, We've just brought someone else and grown that editorial team by one to try and ensure that we can publish more regularly to that volume. Um, But no, there's there's so many contributing factors. It's it's not as simple as just saying put A in and get B out. Uh, Certain content will just fly that you just either don't expect or will just go beyond um, the realms of kind of normality. We also now play the Facebook game and invest in in promoting our content um, to a wider audience. Uh, and again, sometimes that can kind of resonate in, in slightly different ways. We run partnerships um, with brands. And again, that comes with social budget to push. So you need a few of those to kind of ensure that there's, there's you're extending that reach. Um, but I think crucially within this whole conversation is it's not the be all and end all is not size of audience. We're not we're not a publisher that's kind of cracking the whip, going why the hell aren't we getting to this point and just keep throwing more in and we'll get more out. It's about saying what can that team do comfortably, where can we better our own understanding of how we can make that content work a little bit harder and reach new people. Um, but it's and I've I've said. Um, before we're striving for a number at the moment and the the plan is that when we get there we don't just kind of shut the door on it and go right now now let's aim for this it's going to be like look let's let's enjoy this let's let's aim for consistency here we believe that will allow us to um be more kind of attractive to potential commercial partners um even things like banner ads just just reaching a slightly bigger audience will bring in a little bit more money that we, we can use elsewhere so it's it's about trying to be realistic in that. It's not just striving for more, more, more. But just to confirm on that, are you saying that um, rega- as long as the consistency and the quality remains remains strong, that if you increase the number of posts you're putting out, that that does actually correlate to some degree to audience size? Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. And also the the fact that we've done it for ten years now, we have a huge long tail of content that contributes thousands of views a day through um, 
SEO and through um, through other means that actually kind of you sometimes forget that and actually uh, I don't know the exact numbers but probably content post in the last week might contribute towards um, 50% of total page views but actually the everything from before will still bring through a phenomenal amount of traffic. Just talking about your website and you know how did you actually go about building that in the first place what platform is it built on what challenges and how has that evolved? Uh, so I uh, we got given this brief and I had this idea for it and I started to mock it up in InDesign or Photoshop or something. And there was a guy in the year below, Jez Burrows, um, who was studying graphic design and there was just one of those kind of, not necessarily chance encounters, but it was just the right time to go, is is this even possible to build? And he just turned around and said, yeah, I reckon I could do that. And as a result, we moved away from just designing in illustrating photoshop um in design and photoshop and actually just just building the thing and i mean in its first i don't um i think the work he did was absolutely phenomenal but we weren't building the kind of the be all and end all we were building a um a, a an, kind an of an mvp yeah just a, but without knowing what the mvp like even Which meant for anyone listening minimum viable product yeah. so basically the, the the rudimentary version of of what it is you're trying to create but in April 2007, suddenly to buy a domain name hosting for a site that wasn't getting a huge amount of traffic, um, it was, I can't remember the name of the CMS that, that Jez built it on, but it did everything that we wanted it to. When we kind of talked about uh, the, the kind of change in functionality, I don't think really did change. It was more, here's this thing, we can just kind of um, fill it now. We can just, it, it works in terms of you upload an image, a headline, some copy, a link, a category. Um, but there weren't a huge amount of people doing it. And I think that is, it kind of all too often goes goes kind of unforgotten, is we're not putting this into the world now and competing with hundreds and thousands of other people doing this thing. It was like we were one of the first. We were in an ecosystem that people were very open in promoting these things. There was a site, um, what was the site? So there was uh, News Today, which was became QBN. And someone there just wrote like a text link going, like, this is nice, which brought through a whole load of people because that already had an audience. When you'd find something on another site, you'd go, found via so-and-so. And over time, we've lost that kind of openness and, and kind of saying, look, this is this is where we've seen this thing. And actually building in the first instance, you rely off those people going, oh, hey, they've seen this great thing and here it is. And um, yeah, it's it's there's a certain kind of romanticism to that early days of doing it and just kind of monitoring analytics and seeing more people on the site and from different countries and um, for something that was very much a kind of project built out of a bedroom. Not to uh, really nerd this up, but with regards to the CMS system, the the reason I ask this is because I want people to know that it's actually accessible. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you've built yourself a, your own custom CMS and and you know, it would be very, very hard to replicate. But in the early days, was it, you know, an off-the-shelf system or...? It was an... It was an uh, just for clarification, content management system, it's basically what you enter your information into, which, yeah, gives yeah. you the front end of the website. It's... So I would guess... So it's not... It wasn't like a WordPress where you could just go, right, here it is and here's a theme. There was a... It was a, it was a system that required some kind of nuances around actually... Developing writing some, code some and developing prerequisite some stuff. skills 
Um, but again, you forget that 2007, you're not going, right, we need to design this for desktop, tablet, mobile. You're, you're going, right, most people on this one or two computers, it's all being viewed on a desktop. Here you go. And it wasn't until April 2009. And even then, I don't think we even had a mobile site. We were very much kind of buying into the idea that the, the iPhone, you could just double tap and it would zoom in. Um but it, it was kind of super simple. But I I can't remember what how much WordPress was kind of around then and being used. Um, things like Tumblr. I can't really remember what stage Tumblr was at then. Um, but again, going back to the, the luck, was that I said to Jez, do you think you could build this? And it was his interests and understanding of how you could build that thing that ended up. If he'd turned around and gone, yeah, WordPress. Or yeah, there's this thing called Squarespace. Or this thing called... It's like, we'd have gone, yeah, fine, cool, let's go. Um yeah. Yeah, so very lucky in that. I'd like to quote you when you said that it's exciting to work here and it's exciting because it's our own thing. Um, I love this because I feel like it's so true. I mean, this podcast is a perfect example. I love doing it because it's, it's my my little baby. Um, however, you've got a, a team now. Uh, when I read it was 20, I'm sure it's more now. Um, how do you make it their, their thing as well? Uh, yeah, great question. I think you it's not easy it's not easy taking it from a a kind of even from a two-person thing to what is now a 30-person thing across three businesses but in answer to your question i think the 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 sole thing you have to do is just give them responsibility and ownership if if alex and i were overseeing every project and every decision i wouldn't want to work there it's like that and i i totally understand why those guys wouldn't want to work there but actually it's taken time, but we've got senior staff pretty much across the whole business, and it's people that we trust. And that's not just, say, trust lies in those senior staff. I've got as much confidence with our junior and midweights um, to try and make informed decisions and rationales as to the decisions that they're making. And I think, ultimately, our business is better for those guys having that responsibility, um, and hopefully they get a sense of satisfaction and enjoyment from that. I think the challenge is always that you're you're trying to um, give that responsibility, but actually that responsibility has to be taken, and also they have to make decisions. They have to say, "I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that," or "I think we go with this idea and that idea." Um, and I think sometimes with the the more established things, like and it's nice that it's much difficult for a an editor editor in chief to kind of come in and go right wholesale changes because it's it works, but you want them to feel that they can say that and they can go, look, I'm, I'm interested in this. I'd like to see if this works, that works. Um, so it's, it's that, and I think that it will have to continue to be that. Um, and also, I think it's where Alex and I do get our biggest enjoyment from. So the takeaway there is, is for people to be a little bit more assertive, would you say that? Yeah, assertive, proactive. Um, I think it's... Uh, I, think, I think all too often... Uh, and it's a danger that I make myself sound like I always make the right decision, which is which is which is not true. But if you've joined our business in the last three or four years, you come into something that's operating at a certain scale. What people forget is Alex and I were doing this kind of uh, two desks in Shoreditch, and it's kind of like, yeah, we don't really know. We're just going to have to like we've been there, we've done it, we've we've had to learn those lessons, we've had to make those mistakes, we've had to kind of try and work out the order in which you have to do things and we don't expect people to be the finished articles um 
we we expect people to kind of come in and, and bring that and it's one of the things that we try and identify at interview but it's difficult because the interview you naturally kind of a big part of you is trying to say the answer that you think the person wants you to say and and all those things but i think it's it's noticeable um those people that are just proactive and will make decisions talking about you had to learn lessons on the job if you were to take away three lessons from this whole experience of growing this business and plough into something new, say all this was eradicated overnight, what would be the three things, I appreciate this is putting you very much on the spot, that you would take on to the next business? Uh, I'm assuming that this next... But I don't think if I had to leave this, I could go and work... I could go and maintain working in the creative industry straight away. I'd want to go and do something very separate. But I think the three lessons that we've learned is... Um, or that I would take into it is work with others. I think a collaborative kind of mindset, um, you just end up with better results. Uh, I think embrace the new and just kind of, even if you don't know it necessarily, to just kind of um, to to trust your gut and go with what feels right. Um, uh, what would a third one be? Uh, uh yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe kind of, I think if it was something new, I think to just be utterly focused on that one thing to begin with. Just like, keep it simple. Um, don't overcomplicate for complicated sake. Um, I think, yeah, try and retain focus and just kind of go for what you're trying to do. I think just to expand on that, it's, it's from researching numerous people and how they've gone about doing them, their things. It seems like they're very, very granular at the start and then once they've established this this one bracket, they, then all of a sudden the umbrella comes out of the top and you, it, you get a wider net. Um, but yeah, as you say, focus at the beginning. Just to end on a very, very bright note, uh, what are some of the struggles you've had to face over the years and day-to-day, what are some of the things that you wish you just really didn't have to deal with? Uh, right, struggles. Struggles. Um, Thinking of struggles. Well, no, it's not. It's it's more, I, I think, I think there's a danger that you can be incredibly clichéd with an answer like this. I think some of the... Some of the biggest troubles come from the reality that there's two people that own this business um, and ultimately we can make mistakes, but there's such a conscious effort to kind of um, behave in a way that all those people feel like they're, they're being treated honestly and fairly. And I think sometimes with the best intention in the world, you can deliver something and that one thing that you've not thought about is either misinterpreted slightly by one person or or something like that. Um, but no, I think we've... I think Alex and I have had a very... Um, we've grown this thing slowly. We've, we're, we're where we are after 10 years. Um, and we're very much in it for the next 10 years. And I think as a result, we've allowed ourselves... And I think one of the things we've definitely allowed ourselves in, in the later years, in the latter years, has been that time to kind of stop and go, we don't need to rush into this. I remember we, um, the appraisal system that we have at work, we were working on a whole set of new competencies. And um, we were doing this kind of maybe three, four months before our AGM that we delivered to the whole team. 
And we were like, yeah, okay, it's going to be a load of work. And we just kind of said, no, we d- like we don't. We're the only ones talking about this. The guys in there aren't going. Oh, I wish they'd review these and look at these. So we just put it back. So we had sixteen months to work on this thing. And that wasn't to say we worked all sixteen months, but we just said, look, we we can take our time here. I think with a lot of things early on, um, you're just kind of shooting for the moon. You want to get there as quick as possible. And actually, with a little bit of age and seeing how things work, you kind of go. We don't need to rush into this. We can take our time. We can stop, think. Um, and it's some of the best advice we've had is just don't be committed to making a decision there and then. Say, yeah, great. Let me see some options. I'll come back to you in the morning. And even if you know what what you think is right to just go, yeah, fine. Give us some time. Because people will then come to know that you won't make a decision there and then. You'll want a little bit of time. So they get a little bit more organised. Um, it allows you some time if it's not right to actually go, let's look at some stuff. Um, but no, I think, I think on the struggles thing, it's, I think we've been lucky in that we've, we've, we've tried to be as considered as possible with, with the decisions that we've made. Um, and what was the second part of that question? (laughs) It was struggles and... Anything you have to deal with day to day that you wish you could just turn off? No, I don't think so. I think, again, we're lucky that, that we've built a business now, like we took the decision to bring in full-time HR, because that relieves a certain aspect of the job that Alex and I were like, look, it's not only that we don't um, enjoy doing this part of the job, but it's also that as directors, we're probably not the ones to now deal with this stuff as it's 30 people. We have a studio manager, which again, not only relieves um, stuff of us, but also the rest of the team. I think again, it's, it's a big, a big um, thing that we have to remind ourselves is we're running a business that we own. We're not running a business that is how we think a business should be run. We get to make some decisions and maybe bring in people that other people wouldn't at certain stages and, and things like that. And I think as a result, if at any stage Alex and I are looking at stuff that we're doing and saying, why the hell am I doing this? It's like, well, why am I doing it? Like We've, we've built a team either, is it... Um, Cheryl Sandberg, there was a thing that I read last week about her about saying like ruthless prioritisation. And it's like just work on the things that need to be worked on. And actually the other stuff either will get picked up elsewhere, you can delegate it elsewhere, or actually it's just not that important. I think there's a danger that we sometimes just make ourselves busy for the sake of wanting to feel busy. Great answer. In the second section of the interview, I wanted to ask Will about how he managed to take the initial traction that it's nice that created and turn it into a fledgling and self-sustaining business that is diversified into several offerings. As a business that has grown organically, without the injection of venture capital, I wanted to try and uncover the roadmap for the initial creation through to profitability. So I personally find the business side of things fascinating, and there are just so many cliches when it comes to making a good living, following your dreams and whatnot. And I was hoping that you wouldn't mind getting a little bit granular with me today to help people understand how they can go and create a successful business themselves. Uh, and to start off, I thought I'd ask you, why have you never chosen to take venture capital? Uh, I think we've never chosen to take venture capital because we've never we've never seen that exit as being um, three, five years away. I think we've never kind of gone, oh, yeah, we can have a big injection of cash here because that big injection of cash comes with someone saying, right, what's my return? When's my return? And actually, I think we can build a business that we can, or a group of businesses that we can still be involved in when we're hopefully 60, 70 years old, that pay a good wage, that that allow us to do the things that we want to do, um, and actually have a bit of kind of, um, I guess, legacy for a better word, that actually we leave something that actually has a positive impact and effect on the world. We have taken investment, though. 
we have taken investment in Lecture in Progress. So the business that we launched in April this year, we, through conversation with Paul Smith, um, who we've got to know over the last kind of uh, six or seven years, he, I mean, we didn't pitch it at all. We introduced it and talked about it. And he said, look, I'm really interested in it. It's really closely aligned um, with what he wants the foundation to do. And actually, there was a, a small amount of money that allowed us to do things um, a little bit quicker than we wanted. But the great thing about that is it comes with everything that it doesn't come with any of the stuff that I've just said. He's not there kind of going, well, what's the return on investment the and when? It's like actually it allows um, us to do some stuff that he, he very much wants to support. It's nice that started out as a blog, and as you've just said, it's diversified into a host of offerings from the magazine, the weekly events, yearly conference and agency. And on top of this, uh, your team has grown. And to do all this stuff, I can't imagine it's cheap. But to take us back to where you started, what was the thing that created your first form of revenue for you? Uh, first form of revenue uh, would have probably have been... It would have been one of two things. It would have either been um, a very small banner ad um, from a company called The Deck that a guy called Jim Cudell, um runs. And it was very much uh, uh, a set of banner ad. Oh, it was one banner ad, but he worked with a number of websites and it was about being unobtrusive and trying to bring suitable people to those sites. You just put a little bit of code on. It was super unobtrusive. Um, and it maybe bought us somewhere in the region about £1,000 a month. Um, which for the size of what it was, it it definitely helped. It definitely started to bring in some money to kind of offset against hosting. And what was the size of your audience back then? So I reckon when that came in, we would have probably have had to have been over 100,000 a month, maybe pushing 150-ish. But it probably came down to page views, and I can't remember the page views then. So how long were you doing it prior to then to get to that point? Because that's a fairly substantial audience already. Yeah, so we... We grew... So the number that I always remember is... Um, uh, so maybe it wasn't then. So when we did the first magazine, so April 2009, so it had been uh, running for two years by that point, I remember us getting to about just over 100,000 because the conversation we had about a print run of 5,000 or, I mean, the first magazine, maybe we did 2,000. We literally said 2% of our audience would want to show an interest in this. Um Unfortunately, they did. But it, I remember kind of going, look, 100,000, how many mags do you think we do? Um, but again, back then, because it was relatively uh, new to everyone, I think people were still kind of getting to grips with those numbers. And actually, I'm sure if you look at the um, CPM then compared to now, you're, you're chatting, you're, you're, it's daylight robbery for what we were getting paid to stick a, an ad on the site. And then the second thing that would have brought through money was Alex, um, while I was working at a place called Third Eye Design as a designer and running its nice that mornings, evenings, weekends, uh, Alex was working as a producer for YCN. And they had a project with Nike called The Art of Football. And Alex said during one of these meetings, this is before Alex was involved um, in its nice that, he said, oh, why don't you work with Will? They could write the articles and support it and kind of do the awareness um, and I think we got paid a couple of grand for that, which back then I remember that was one of the catalysts for me to kind of go, I'm going to stop doing the job that I do. Because again, it just gave that little bit more confidence in going, look, there's, there are opportunities here. So effectively, that was your first piece of branded content. Yeah, and, which is great and when you, you s- think about kind of the timing and actually those two things were happening then. And there was probably a massive gulf between when they next happened. But actually it was... 
it was obvious at that point that actually you could have respect for your audience and put something in front of them that they'd be interested in, but leverage it so that the kind of everyone won. Yeah, which is, uh, I believe, like a, a philosophy I try and push everywhere is make everyone win. That's the that's yeah. that's how. Why not? Yeah. Um, so, how much of your business to this day consists of branded content? Uh, so brand so branded content is broken into um, a number of different channels, and it varies from sponsored content. And I should say as well, everything is signposted. I think we maintain that kind of respect for the audience. They should they should understand exactly what's going on here. The lowest and kind of easier, easiest way in is sponsored content and they're literally buying an article and it comes very much kind of from a press release and pushing a specific um, product, service, whatever it be. Our editorial team still write that article. You don't just, you can't just buy the space and stick in what you want. Uh, it runs an article and that, that just works. It, it gets fed into the site, it's flagged up as such, it's promoted on social media, it's promoted on the newsletter and it gets visibility. And we always maintain with that that we can't guarantee anything. All we're doing is putting it in front of that audience and they will they will gauge whether or not they're interested or not. The amazing thing with it is it still performs, on average, almost like for like for the rest of the content. And I think that is in our kind of um, desire to make sure it's the right kind of stuff. Um, I'm sure we say no to a lot more than we say yes to probably to the point in which I've in the past kind of got in the way to kind of go, what, hang on, we're not going to run this? And the editorial team were like, nope, we don't think it's right. And it's like, okay, I can't, I'm not, I, I don't <laughs> want to be that guy. Um, and it goes all the way up to partnerships where a brand brings a lot more money to the table, but they also invest a lot more time and energy. And that's about working with them to create something bespoke. Um, and that is where I'd love to see more of it. Um, it's just finding the right brands um, who are prepared to kind of invest in that way. But again, like for like, and the, the great thing about the partnerships is because we've had a hand in actually making, kind of coming up with what that idea is and the commissioning and the storytelling, actually that content performs better than your kind of average bit of content. Um, but like everything, it's it's a balance. It's It's just making sure that you don't overdo it, but also it's making sure that you get enough of it in to support that editorial team's endeavor so you've gone pretty granular there with us in terms of uh, how you make your revenue from the branded content does everything you do uh, make money and if it's okay with you would you mind just kind of breaking us down a few of the other ways that you bring in cash yeah of course um if i had my laptop i'd take you through kind of um, (laughs) line for line so um kind of in essence yes everything makes money obviously some things are kind of come with certain caveats because doing the magazine we invest a huge amount of editorial time and creative time that we that isn't billable we put kind of billable hours against it so that we we're careful as to where that time is spent um but online um you have those channels um you have the 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 branded content you have banner ads still and banner ads are the thing that i would happily get rid of tomorrow but the reality is that they probably still pay one two people's salary in that office um we then have uh, our annual um, regulars that we get sponsored. So that's much more a brand just saying, yes, we want to be aligned with this bit of content, so be that the graduates uh, wants to watch or review of the year. Uh, we then have, so I think that's everything online. Uh, we then have the events. So the events boiled down to ticket price and uh, event partner and sponsors. Um, and what we try and do there is we try and make the... Um, Ticket price kind of match the production of the event. 
and then the event partners and sponsors is where we we make it kind of money on it and that's ultimately so that if the partners and sponsors aren't there we wouldn't have to stop doing the event tomorrow we could maintain putting that event on uh the magazine uh is print advertising on a print run of uh 6000 so you're not talking loads of money but you are talking about a revenue stream that that very much makes that magazine possible and then uh the cover price so what we've tried to do there and what we've always tried to do with that mag right from when we did the first one is incentivize buying it online so the very first magazine we did the incentive was slightly different because we wanted to make sure that we sold enough so that we could actually put it on press. Um, but now we do you know, kind of big uh, fold-out print, screen print, stickers, and they're only for people that buy it online. And that's to try and get as many people as possible to pay £10 plus a small amount of postage and packaging rather than going to the stockist, who we still rely on heavily, but the stockist who take maybe 50% of that cover price. And it's about that balance. Um, and the great thing is is that we've... We've got good relationships with our distributors, so we know roughly where we sit within the independent magazines that they stock. Um, and also, we're kind of we're very open to go. We we know a number of the stockists in London. I know um, a couple down in Brighton. And actually, just going in and just having honest conversations, are going like like the, the one person that works in the magazine shop in Brighton that I talked to. The first thing I always ask is like, "What's flying off the shelves?" Not just has our own mag performing, but what is what are you noticing more and more people are buying and. It definitely ebbs and flows. Um, you definitely get those mags that are suddenly totally in vogue and, and people absolutely love and then either don't change and therefore become a little bit one note and the sales drop off a bit. And I think with our own mag, we've we've experienced um, trying to change to make it fit for purpose for, for what the role of it is. Um, i trying to think of any other revenue streams. Just to interrupt you there, I'm, I've always been interested in events because I just like the extrapolation of numbers on events. I think it's quite, quite uh, attractive. However, I found that the venues aren't shy to; they understand that and they tend to charge a lot of money. Um, you're saying that the ticket price covers venue costs, and then you make your money through partnerships. How how do you quantify how much you charge a partner? We, I mean, we have. Um, We've we've got, I mean, we're streets ahead of where we were in terms of how we weigh up everything that we do, how much time we invest in it, and therefore kind of how much profit we make per hour for those things. And actually you get those things that kind of perform above and beyond. You get those things that actually you look at and go, wow, we invest a huge amount of time in that thing for, for, for not a huge amount of money. But I'm guessing, it's, guessing that's the mag. The mag is, um, I'm desperately trying to think now. So what was the worst, I'm curious, worst performer? So, like, what is the the yeah the worst performer and the best performer for you? Uh, let's say least best performer, uh, not worst. <laughs> um, let's. I do, do you know it's a really good question. I think you'll find that there are some things that we do online, like the graduates, that we invest a huge amount of time and energy into. But the graduates is a massively important part of the ecosystem. Of it's nice that, and actually, if you got rid of the grads based purely on working out spreadsheets, I think you'd lose quite a big part of of who we are. Um, I think it's more those spreadsheets are there to kind of just give indicators and clues, and and I mean even something like the magazine give you the opportunity to go. This is this is how efficient it is. Where could we actually improve that? Is it about trying to sell more? Is it about trying to print it for less? Is it about trying to spend less time? 
Is it about tightening up some processes that the editorial time doesn't take as long? Do the creatives need um, however many hours that we've we've said that they should be spending on it? And actually, it's more just playing around with a few of those things. And actually, through tightening some of that, you can get a very different result out the other end. But but ultimately, the other thing is that, as I've learned, it's, it's so dangerous to live in a spreadsheet because you do all of that for a mag and you forget and you, there's a danger that you lose focus on. Let's make sure we're creating the best mag possible. And actually, if you spend exactly the same amount of time, energy, money on it, but but get a better thing, you'll probably end up selling more and you'll get advertisers going, oh, we've seen this, we'd love to advertise in the next issue. It's There's so much kind of um, plate spinning and the things that you most expect are the things that are least likely and the things you least expect are the things that suddenly fly. I think I know the answer to this, but with over a million visitors to your site each month, if only 5% of them paid a pound a month, you could have a 50 grand reoccurring revenue. Obviously, that would detract from your... Uh, banner ad clicks and everything because you reduce your your view count um but is there ever something you've considered um so the numbers are really funny the numbers that get quoted back so we have we're edging close and close to half a million uniques a month but we have a total reach of about 1.3 1.4 million so i have always maintained that i think it's nice that will be free to access i think the the nature of its content is that it's it's there to kind of champion and promote those creatives' work. Um, I think the thing that we have to be clever at is is where the opportunities are with the the percentage of very loyal readers, and also making sure that we provide kind of value for money more than anything. But there are there are things that we've looked at and said maybe there's a kind of model in this, maybe there's a model in that. But one of the things that we grew very early on, kind of two years in, was the jobs board. And the jobs board, because of audience and reach, is a very profitable um, business in its own right. And we're exploring kind of taking that out and it act- actually acting as its own business within the group anyway. Um, but it's it's so funny, that thing, it's the thing that we spend the least amount, or the least amount of time on. Um, it's the most consistent um, in terms of number of jobs being posted, um, partner agencies, all of those things. And actually, we've taken the opportunity recently to give it a bit of time and attention to, to kind of get it kind of up to kind of web standards and expectations for 2017 the reason i mentioned this idea of paywalls not necessarily because i thought it would be something you'd ever consider doing but it's just it's almost a bit of a mecca as a as a business to have a reoccurring revenue model from your super fans as kevin kelly would say and um, with so many great free sites and sites such as netflix and spotify where for just five pounds a month you can have all this value um, the perspective of how do we actually uh, pr- provide enough value to our audience in order for them to be prepared to give us something it is becoming increasingly harder and harder with these platforms that are emerging. Um, how, like, What insights have you got with regards to that? Has it been a challenge for you to convert people who obviously absolutely love what it is you do and, and make them people that are prepared to, to give you something back, even if as, as small as those contributions may be? Uh, yeah, we've. I mean, we're 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 always keen to, to have an awareness as to what's going on in the wider world. I think the fascinating thing with things like Netflix is you're talking about a kind of very much an entertainment service. You're talking about something that people will go home, turn on, and sit in front of for a couple of hours. It's it's part of their evenings. It's part of their weekends. 
We know that It's Nice That is a nine till six thing that people look at during work hours. We still have um, we, we still have a bigger audience on desktop than we do on mobile. We know that this is something that people get to work and it's their way of kind of keeping up to date with what's going on. Uh, I, I do maintain that I think It's Nice That will always be free. I think in the past we've looked at things like the magazine being that kind of recurring revenue. Um, but I think the, the one... The thing that I always come back to is this idea that start as you mean to go on. So because it's nice that's been free for 10 years, I think it's really difficult to suddenly flick that switch and go, right, now behind a paywall. What we're trying to do with Electron Progress is implement a paywall very early on to say, look, and, and we believe that content has a certain value that it's nice that doesn't. It has a certain depth. It has a certain consistency in that depth. And there's a knowledge. And I think, I think if you do it from the off, people immediately associate a value with that thing and i think that's why some of the kind of uh, big um national newspapers have struggled in that kind of balancing act of of what the online paywall is because they immediately let everyone have it and then they started to kind of pull back i think it's fascinating with um what the times have done in that they have with their um online uh the website uh news um uh, channel they've they've left breaking news they're saying like look if you're after breaking news you can go and get that from the bbc from the guardian from all those people what we're going to provide is real in-depth valuable news coverage that actually it, it it you then even if you don't necessarily buy into it you you suddenly change that mindset of going yes there's a value there and i think no one has cracked it in the kind of publishing world i think there are the entertainment world is slightly different um and i'm sure we all subscribe to netflix spotify um uh, those kind of things but yeah i i don't look at anyone currently and say yes they're the ones that have cracked it that's the model that everyone's going to follow so the first time i contacted you you were working on lecture in progress and obviously there was the kickstarter i identified what i thought was uh, a chink in it from the off which was um it's nice that is one of these things you go to and it's got such amazing value because it's like I'm I'm being whilst it's not an entertainment platform you could say that you're going there to enjoy yourself you're going there to to observe beautiful work whereas lecture in progress was saying you you need help whilst it's not directly saying you need help it's it's implying that this is where you go to be uh, be given some information that's going to help you get on in life and I think subconsciously everyone goes, I know what I'm doing or uh, I don't need help. And, you know, people that tend to embrace and and have a novice uh, approach to to life tend to go on and do great things because they're prepared to say, I don't know everything. But um, to when you contrast, say, how much fun and enjoyment and the, the emotive response you have from the It's Nice That website and then you go to Lecture in Progress, not that I've actually explored it much, I could go... I'm paying for this one, but I'm not paying for this one. Like, this is the one that I want, and this is the one that I'm being forced to go to and pay, you know? And I think that's why the Kickstarter was the best thing possible, because it it showed up quite quickly. Yes, this thing doesn't resonate in the way that we'd hoped it to. Um, It still still raised a sum of money, um, or it, it still got kind of 18 grand into a target that proved there was some appetite for it. But we it allowed us that time 
to kind of step back and go right let's actually go and talk to those people what what is it about it and actually the thing the things that we changed immediately were free access to students like you need um, they need to just be able to get access to this thing and what we look at is still this idea that we believe there is an opportunity for professional membership to some degree now we're going to introduce professional membership at the start of next month I'm not for a second thinking that all those people that have signed up as professionals currently are going to say, yep, yeah, right, here's the money, let's go. But what I do hope is is slowly over the course of the coming years, as some of those students graduate and that have used the site and been active users, they're going to look at it and go, actually, I am learning stuff here. And we need to look at that kind of what we're, what we're offering and, and that value proposition. But hopefully they'll graduate. And I think the first year we'll do it heavily discounted and say, look, yes, we know you're a graduate, here you go. But hopefully over the course of the next, I don't know, two, three, four years after graduation, they will become paying members because they will recognise that value in it. That's our challenge as and, we kind of move on And what is the now. value prop for a professional? Is it exposure? No, I think it's still that insight and advice. I think it's still this idea that the recurring theme from a number of interviews and conversations we had with current students and recent grads was that they're saying that they're on a course, um, they're studying I don't know, take for example graphic design yet when you ask them about the kind of graphic design studio, the kind of work they want to be doing, it's it, they suddenly kind of reach that point and, they, and they're very open in recognising the kind of, I don't know what day-to-day industry looks like um, the same as kind of um, uh, kind of people, there's a lot of graphic designers that want to work in the ad industry but they don't necessarily kind of understand the correlation between the two of those transferable skills or what they'd be expected to do or or even can I go and get a job in advertising even though I've studied graphic design um, there's the the roles. I mean, the the breadth of roles is the one thing that we we want to shine a massive light on. Is the the the, the roles of producer, project manager, studio manager, uh, account manager. None of those things are, are communicated massively while at university. Um, and and that's some of the most positive feedback we've had. Is is these people that are studying a course where they kind of recognise that it's not quite right, but they're paying a phenomenal amount of money to be there, and they're they're kind of like, well. I can't quit because I've I've done it for these two years. But but as you're saying, like, look, there are these things that exist. There are these roles that exist. This is this is what their day to day looks like. This is how they've got into them. And I think there's a good chance that lecture in progress will do more in time to help those people make the transition. There are people studying graphic design who want to be graphic designers who are super talented, and and that transition is is much much easier. But I think there's a wealth of people, and we recognise it within our own workforce. The workforce, the vast majority of people that are working as producers and project managers are graphic design grads. Um, but they don't leave uni going, right, um, after that producer graphic design job. It takes a little bit of time for them to work that out. Great. In the final section of the interview, I wanted to find out how Will's experiences have shaped his outlook in life. As someone who has given hundreds of talks and panelled numerous prestigious award shows, I imagine that he'd had many opportunities to refine his philosophies when it comes to the creative pursuit and living a meaningful life. So you started this when you were at university and I know that you believe strongly in a a meritocratic uh, thing that basically it's not about your age or experience that uh, that shouldn't result in your success. Uh, I'm curious to know what your outlook is just on education generally. I know you've just mentioned it briefly there with uh, lecture in progress, but do you think students should still go to university with the amount fees are and other other forms of educating yourself? What a question. Yeah. Um, I think that 
young people, students, should feel like they are informed enough to make the right decision um, to to go on to do the, the job that they want to do um, and that they think they want to do aged 16 or 18. I think the reality is, and what we observe um, and from what I've observed in the last 10 years since I've kind of entered industry, is it feels like 99% of people entering industry are doing so through university, which then makes it very difficult for those that, that don't want to go to university that want to try and find um, an alternative way in. Um, I think the conversation, even in recent months, has grown around tuition fees, um, the role of tuition fees, that student debt. We're taking the time to do a, a kind of insight report to actually get a bit of a kind of state of the nation sense check as to kind of what the feelings are and understand it as best we can. Um, but I do think it's very difficult. I do think it's very difficult um, to land that first job unless you're kind of um, leaving university alongside the, the the many tens of thousands that are every year across a number of courses. I know this isn't uh, the Ricky Richards episode, but it's just something I feel so passionately about is that any, everyone I've spoke to has never told me that the, their university degree got brought up during their interviews and, and it tended to come down to the quality of their work to some degree. One thing that my lecturers have said and it's something I believe in is the thing that university provides that a lot of other educational things don't provide is uh, basically the the fact that you're forced to be there for several years. It allows you to develop without the pressure from, from other people to get a job and that kind of thing. So for anyone who's listening to this who's debating it, because obviously now a lot of students in the UK especially are leaving with significant amounts of debt. On that, by the way, you can go and study abroad for a hell of a lot less money, so would def- definitely worth considering. But... Um, yeah, like if you are one of these people that is is fantastic at self-directed study and could really knuckle down for three years and you, you're not going to have the pressure of your parents and you can just, you're like, I want to be this and you're going to go for it, then I would I would seriously consider not going if you're pursuing a creative endeavour that doesn't require the prerequisite of a degree. Of course, you're right. When you speak to people, most of them are coming out of universities, but they still face the same struggles that anyone would, so... Um, and there are alternatives now, great courses, I'm sure, like, you know, it's nice that are doing great things. Um, and so, yeah, if you're if you're one of those motivated individuals, it's something that I, I feel like there needs to be a credited alternative. And with the amount that university costs, there's definitely room there for somebody to exist in that space. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think the, the thing the thing that hasn't happened, though, which off the back of everything that you've said should result in is a plethora of alternatives and it's interesting as to who who the responsibility falls on because actually if universities are there doing a job getting people through uni i don't think it's on them to kind of to suddenly change um necessarily um so it's whether or not as an industry certain people have to take it upon themselves say look actually we need to do something about this yes it's not going to uh, be easy it's not going to be glamorous it's kind of but for the longevity of our industry we need to ensure that um, we either open up more accessibility from diverse backgrounds or um, just people that don't want to go to university for three years and feel like there are viable alternatives to do something else um, but some of the people we interviewed we we got the most brutally honest answers and when 
was chatting to one guy, I can't remember where he was from, but he was like second year. And I said, after kind of 10, 15 minutes of chatting to him, it was like, I, it, like correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression you're not necessarily enjoying kind of the course, you're not enjoying this. Like, why are you there? And he was like, I just kind of want to get pissed and I want to try and get laid and I want to... And you kind of go, <laughs> you can't argue with that. There is a point in which um, far broader beyond the creative industry, university has become a a, a, a stage in your life. Um, and I, again, I don't think, I don't think um, you can just kind of go, oh, that's wrong. Um, I think what, what we're really excited about are what could those alternatives look like and how can we best complement university education or um there's been more in the news recently about trying to do two um to do more two-year degrees so immediately you reduce the amount of student debt but you have to make sure that you can still deliver the course um to the standard that you kind of need but it's i mean we've 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 talked about it for ages many of the kind of those kind of issues surrounding the creative industry and it, it's still we're still in a bit of an odd industry in that it unlike other sectors where grad schemes are kind of ten a penny and and that's that's a massive way in because there's a huge amount of studios who are uh i don't know a dozen or less people actually they, there is a there is an argument that they do kind of need people that are kind of fit for purpose as they come out but there's also the the openness to admit like yeah actually someone graduating they're not the finished article far from it you need the time and energy to kind of um invest in them as individuals and actually we've come away from a world in which you enter a job and work your way up and actually if someone's going to be with you for two years and then go elsewhere it's you you can understand some of the challenges of people saying like well but why am i going to spend um time to develop this person and then yeah, well, I'm not going to be able to pay them the salary that they'll they'll need once they're developed. But again, it's I go back to the kind of um, stage we were at with um, online publishing. Is I don't think anyone's necessarily cracked it. I don't. I think it's far from broken. I think it's still doing a job. But undoubtedly, the conversation um, is ongoing as to kind of the challenges that it's facing. And I think what I'm excited about with Lecture in Progress is we're going to be we're, we're trying to do something, and we're going to be in the mix as and when things change. Good answer. <laughs> uh, I hear that on every one of your Monday morning meetings that you ask your staff, who did you meet this week? And I think this is a lovely question to ask. And what is the significance of being a good networker, in your opinion? Or uh, maybe networker is the wrong word, but why, why do you do that? Why do you think that's valuable? I think throughout uh, the 10 years since we've graduated, the people that we've met for two minutes... Um, have been some of the most important and they've and those relationships ultimately that's what oh that i believe that's what our business is kind of totally propped up on is is the is that opportunity to to kind of get in touch with that person to come in and work on that thing or introduce someone else or give a bit of advice on something or or whatever it be and i think when we've got a room of 30 people sometimes there can be someone that met someone that's going to unlock an opportunity for someone else but unless you kind of facilitate that conversation um people aren't necessarily that forthcoming kind of just coming in and going oh, i met so-and-so 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 whereas actually if you just give a regular opportunity for people to go oh yeah i had uh, i went to x event and met so-and-so and suddenly someone else can be like oh well actually they might i might be able to get in touch with them about this feature that i'm writing or um they might know so-and-so which is a business opportunity that we're currently working on or something like that and i think it's 
it's one of the things that should be the most natural in the world and actually when it's um when you kind of just dig a little bit deeper i think it can have a, a hugely powerful effect just to push on that a little bit further, so being the successful gentleman that you are, I imagine you know you go to all these conferences, give lots of talks, or on many judging panels. Uh, who are some of the most interesting people you've met along the way? Uh, who's impressed you and why? Invariably, the most interesting people at those events are the delegates that go along and pay the ticket price and go, I've paid my ticket price, I want to chat to you. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, I mean, that's, that's probably unfair to a lot of and almost everyone being very um talented and, and that I've been lucky enough to meet along the way. Um I think um let's think name names. Uh shit. See I'm rubbish <laughs> with names. So I started it's nice that. Um but no, invariably it is it's the people I think all too often the people that you're you're are unexpected end up being some of the most interesting people and again to kind of link it back to lecture in progress a little bit, I think one of the things that it's nice that does very well is champion those kind of big names and kind of regular household names. And actually, if you work in one of those studios, it's it's not very often that you have any visibility. No one's kind of wanting to talk to the producer on that job or the junior designer on, on that job. And actually, we want to give those people a bit more of a voice. Totally skirted that question, right? <laughs> you, you, this, this is uh, not a very uh, swift transition, but... You've got two kids, I believe. Yeah. And you have a relatively lengthy commute to and from Brighton. Uh, It's a big transition in life to have children when you're trying to run a successful business. And, and yeah, I'm curious to know how how you handled that. And, and, you know, a lot of people go through that same experience. How have you you managed to deal with that? Um, I think, I don't know, I don't want to try and draw too many parallels between, like, having a life and then running a business but I think there are unavoidable things that you can kind of draw parallels in I think kind of considered decisions and working out how you might do something and the kind of um what that minds might mean you have to do more of or things that you have to do less of and I think ultimately it kind of um uh me and my partner we we just kind of had that conversation and and it was like yeah we're we're keen to start a family let's try and start a family um, and then you just kind of, you find your feet. I think you I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm just shouting at myself while saying this answer. It's like, we're not the first people to have kids here. It's like, people do this, people get on, um, people work it out as they go. Um, and I think maybe, maybe it's forced the kind of, uh, it's forced the, how's the best way of putting this, to really enjoy that time kind of with family um and and the opportunities that that brings and actually that kind of the stark reminder that when you've got something on at work that you keep thinking about and then you sit down for breakfast with your four-year-old and your two-year-old and they just they just have that ability to bring you firmly back to reality and kind of show you what's important um and i think they're 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 great and they they do offer that um amazing perspective um on the wider world Talking about perspective on the wider world. Better link. Better link, <laughs> yes. Uh, I noticed that you used to have a monthly moves, uh, move letter, uh, um, <laughs> newsletter. What, uh, me as Will Hudson? Yes. Yeah, it didn't and, last long, did it? No, it didn't. <laughs> but, I mean, I have one I'm super into and proud of. And going back through yours, I quite enjoyed it. I wondered why you didn't maintain that. 
good question. And actually, I think when I started it, it was it was about trying to add a little bit of discipline to some of that stuff. And actually, quite quickly, I just realised that it was one too many things. I mean, I've got a couple of side projects that I try and kind of maintain and and would love to give them a little bit more time but the the reality is right now a bit of focus a bit of concentrate on things that are important um be kind of conscious of what time you give to what things ruthless uh, prioritization yes that's the Sandberg one yeah said. that's the one uh so i'm gonna ask you a few quick fire questions uh and so i'll start with favorite film or documentary favorite film or documentary oh, something like point break the original not the remake <laughs> book or learning resource uh i absolutely love uh the do books so i think david higher has written do purpose and do open and they're spot on because they're you can read them in a couple of hours um there's some there's real kind of focus as to uh the point that he's trying to make um and you can kind of just flick through it away from that so many books i read and they just go back onto the shelf and actually, those books I find myself coming back to more and more. A newsletter that people should subscribe to? Other than the It's Nice That One and the Lecture in Progress one, and your own one. <laughs> um, one of the ones that I do... I mean, going back to David Hyatt and the Do, um, uh, it's the uh, Hyatt Denim one that he does, which is uh, Scrapbook Chronicles. That, in terms of stuff that is collated from all sorts of different places it's not necessarily design focused and then one that's maybe a little bit more design focused i think the digiday daily one um which is kind of media news stories i think it's great uh, event that people should attend um ah oh, that is a good question uh um an event that people should attend so i i was lucky so I'm very lucky in that I get to I get invited to speak at stuff and I get to enjoy conferences and events that I otherwise might have gone unnoticed. But I spoke at one last year and I'm attending it this year, which is called The Dots, and it's down in Brighton. And it was great. There was just a... I don't know what it was about it. The compare was great and knitted it all together. It was short, sharp, um, kind of 20, 25-minute talks. But it's it's in about two or three weeks' time, towards the end of September. And it was... Yeah, that was brilliant. Is that linked to the platform? No. No. Um, what's a great present for Will Hudson? <laughs> Shit, I should have should have tried to make notes on this one. Um, what a great question. I'm desperately trying to embrace the whole um, Marie Kondo thing of, of uncluttering and not just having needless stuff. Um, I've currently... I'm currently really... I'm, I've got... A, not a problem yet, but the I've discovered that the clothing brand, um, fi, uh, Finestra... Um, stock a size that actually fits me and has decent length in the arms. Finisterre. Finisterre? Finestra? Finestra? Oh, maybe. The, the uh, Cornwall Coldwater Surfing brand. Yeah. 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 Um, but they, yeah, I didn't think it was going to fit me. And then I've discovered they have, and then it's like, shit. So I can buy the stuff safe in the knowledge. It's a great, great, great brand. Good stuff. It's named after the shipping forecast. So, yeah, I don't know, if, I don't know how you pronounce it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's... it's because it's from my neck of the woods, I think I kind of yeah, grew right. up with it a little bit. Um, so, final question on the quick fires: One thing that you've yet to do in your life that you'd like to do? Um, <laughs> I was going to say get married, but that maybe um, that maybe forces the question. So I'll go with something else. Um, I don't know really. I think I think just maintain that 
balance and enjoy um, the time that I get to spend with people, be that at work, be that at home. But there's no, there's no kind of burning desire. We took, I took a month off in March to travel and loved that. But no, there's nothing kind of outstanding that I, I'm gagging to do. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Will, for today's interview. I have one more question to ask you and also to get to your information about where people can find you. But before we do, I'm going to pass you over to our producer, Adam, who is going to share a few actionable insights from today's interview. Thanks very much for joining us today, Will, and thank you for the wealth of insight you shared with us. To quickly summarise, here's just five of the actionable insights that I heard. Number one, consistency allows growth. It ensures people will keep coming back and you'll be more attractive to commercial partners. Number two, don't chase a larger audience. Focus instead on making your existing content work harder. Number three, to get others engaged with your project, you have to give them responsibility and ownership over what they do. Encourage them to back their own decisions. Number four, if you're hosting branded content on your site, Making it yourself ensures it suits your brand and fits with the content people come to you for. Number five, be ruthless with your prioritisation. It's the only way you can get things done. And one final one, if you're studying but realise you're not going to be a designer, you still have a lot of choices. The design industry has many different jobs. Thank you, Adam. Some really great insights there. So to sum up, before I ask you the final, final, final question, where can people get hold of you and do you have any asks for the audience? What are asks for the audience? That's where you basically go, listen, (laughs) Rick's audience, could you go and do this thing for me? It'd be a great favour. Gotcha. So uh, you can find me personally on at Will Hudson on Twitter and then the websites uh, are all on the HudsonBeckGroup.com website, which will point you in the right direction. Um, the one thing I'd ask you to do is check out Lecture in Progress um, and sign up and take a look. And just to annoy Will a little bit more, how can people submit editor, uh, submit stuff to the site? So submit to the site is um, find the contact page on It's Nice That. Um, and if you've got time, try and pick the right person as to who's writing about something similar. Um, but if not, just kind of just don't blanket everyone, but just pick someone, get in touch with them, talk to them. Um, we do have a policy of trying to get back to, to all emails. Um, but yeah, don't be disheartened if it kind of um, does fall on deaf ears first time round. Um, the guys are inundated with stuff, but just keep on plugging. So my final question for you today, if you had the opportunity to give the world one piece of advice to live a better and more meaningful life, what advice would you give them? Uh, I would, uh, I would, I'd go with make it happen. Be proactive um, and, and make the stuff happen that you want to see. There we go. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for asking me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>